Okay, today I'm chatting with Nate Andorsky. Nate is an entrepreneur, an author, and the CEO of Creative Science. He's an expert in behavioral science, which he uses to build digital strategies and technology for both businesses and nonprofits. We focus very much on the nonprofit sector, chatting about donor behavior and what motivates people to give, the technology that can help nonprofits to better understand that process, and how storytelling is key to building relationships with donors. We also touch on sections of Nate's book, Decoding the Why. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Nate Andorsky. Good evening, Nate. Welcome to the Task Podcast. How are you doing? Good evening. I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for making the time. I've been looking forward to to having this chat, having uh, just pretty much got through your book, uh, Decoding the Why. I think I'm about 10 pages from the end, so pretty good timing to to get on and have a chat yeah awesome um there was there's there's a bunch of things i want to ask you obviously about um the work you do but i think before uh jumping in i will have done a quick intro um to you on the podcast but it'd be great to just get a bit um broader introduction about um you know what what you do the work you do uh creative science and and um we'll ask about then you know the whole interest in behavioral economics so yeah just a bit of background would be great of course. So uh, my name is Dana Dorsky. I am the co-founder and CEO of Creative Science, and we're a digital agency, and we use behavioral science to create strategies and technology for today's most innovative companies. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to dig into the nitty gritty of what that actually means and how it's applied. Cool. What I, I, Behavioral economics may be good for our audience. I mean, our audience is, is predominantly, um, you know, nonprofits, social enterprises, some of them may never have even heard this term or may have heard it and don't understand it. Um, there's, can, you, can you give us a kind of overview of what behavioral economics is, um, how you see it, and also behavioral science, because there are two, what are the differences? Are they in, you know, used interchangeably? But yeah, behavioral economics and yeah, the science element to that. Of course. So um, behavioral economics and behavioral science, they're, they're not exactly the same thing, but for intensive, for intent of this, podcast uh, and oftentimes you're going to hear them use interchangeably and there's also a big debate about the difference and similarities between the two so basically what it studies is that when we make decisions oftentimes we think that we're in full control of our decisions and the reality of it is there's a lot that goes on in our environment in our context of how we make decisions um, that can influence on what we decide and basically what behavioral science looks to understand are what are the types of factors that play into how we make decisions that we're not consciously aware of, but can impact the way that we decide. So a a perfect example of this is something known as loss aversion, where psychologically we weigh gains uh, half as much as losses. So for example, you're walking down the street and you see $20, you pick up that $20, you get this pleasure of acquiring $20. If you were to lose that $20, it feels as if it's a $40 loss. it stings twice as much, right? And those are the types of things that behavioral science looks to unlift is, you know, when we have something, why are we less likely to give it up? And it's partly because of that reason. Cool. And obviously, yeah, I mean, this is what a really key area for anyone working in a, in a nonprofit, anyone focused on fundraising, because, you know, your, your daily life is looking at how to acquire donations, how to um, 
garner trust from donors, how to have, uh, you know, long-term relationships where those people will pledge to projects. So very, very important stuff, I think, for, for non-profits to understand if they don't, I would imagine. Yeah, it's very important and specifically around just giving in general. And I think one of the reasons behavioral science is really interesting in the, the, the philanthropic space is that the way that we engage with nonprofits and the way that we give money, um, oftentimes I, we assume that people do it in a rational sense, right? If I give everybody the information about the cause, I tell them all the stats and numbers, then they'll give the amount of money that they need to. And what we often see specifically as it relates to charitable giving is that the way that we make decisions on how much to give and who to give to, et cetera, often runs counter to what we would think is rational. Interesting. And we're going to dig into that in a little bit, just in terms of the social sector and, you know, looking at your, your agency, Creative Science, you, you, you don't just work in, in the nonprofit sector, but you have done uh, a lot of work in the, in the sector, in the social sector, in terms of looking at technology and innovation. What, how did you end up, uh, you know, working with socially focused organizations, with nonprofits? What, you know, what, what was your journey into that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and one of the ways that we ventured into it is actually one of our first clients was the Case Foundation, which is a decently well-known foundation in, uh, in the U.S. And we did a lot of work with them. And then um, with the work that we did with the Case Foundation, um, we started to get you know more clients and more business in the social good and nonprofit space. And it, it grew from there. And we became really interested. And as you said, we work uh, in the for-profit space too, but part of the work that we do is in the nonprofit space. And we started to become really interested in the intersection between um, sort of social impact and nonprofit fundraising and behavioral science. Yeah, interesting. What I, I, I had this down as a note. I mean, um, yeah, we, as a business, we work in both uh, the for-profit and nonprofit, but we're very focused on organizations that are looking at uh, managing social projects. And I, I think from my experience over the last, 10 years it's kind of changed you know the role of business has changed are you seeing this kind of social agenda sitting within the for-profit space as well now a lot are you coming across organizations that have that kind of social focus and, and of course millennials are driving a lot of this just with their kind of attitude towards how businesses should be you know what their social contract would be do you, do you see a kind of crossing over of the responsibilities of business and non-profit now at all Oh yeah, 100%. And I think there's a lot of different factors that are driving this. I mean, it used to be that you had nonprofits, they were operating in their own individual lane, and then the for-profits were in their individual lane, and that's how they operated. And there's this interesting cross-pollination and intersection of both of those lanes now that you see nonprofits starting to rethink the way that they operate in terms of earned revenue. And even though they don't make a profit, but instead of just fundraising, how can we create a revenue stream? But you also see a lot of for-profits uh, either building a social good model into their core business model or integrating some sort of social good component to their company overall. And some companies are doing it because they feel that they have a moral imperative to make a social impact. And as you noted too, I mean, I think some companies um, are doing it because that's that's what their customers and what the market demands. And that's a that's a space they need to play in in order to, uh, to retain market share. Yeah, interesting. It is... Um... Yeah, definitely. I think I'm seeing the same thing. Um, you know, in terms of j jumping in into, you know, this kind of beh the behavioral economics and how charities, how nonprofits are looking at their donor base. Um, I was 
I think I was reading one section in your book on charity water and it was, it was a really compelling story how I forget the, the founder's name, but he had come, he'd come into that organization or founded that organization with a real focus on how does he sell a, how do you sell a feeling? I think was, was some of the words, right. here. but really the, the real goal there was really, how do you create a kind of ongoing relationship with a donor? You know, you see this, in the business world, you know, software, particularly, you know, a long time ago now went to a subscription model. Uh, running a business on a subscription model is, is way easier because you have, uh, you know, consistent revenue rather than, uh, you know, one-off purchase order. Same with charities, this kind of shift from the major gift to, uh, you know, monthly recurring donations. Um, I don't know what the question is in there, but it'd be good to talk around some of that stuff because, reading in your book I sense there's a whole area around understanding donor behavior when you start to look at that that contract you have that relationship you have with a donor over time and ensuring there's kind of a you know monthly relationship you're understanding them um yeah it would be good to talk around some of that stuff I mean do you see that have you worked on projects in the, the non-profit sector where you're looking at you know how they have better consistent relationships with donors so you're having you know an ongoing donation rather than the kind of one-off monthly uh, the one-off uh, major gift yeah and i think there's a couple different places to look at this from i mean the the first thing is just and this is what charity water has always done really well is how do you sell a feeling and the answer to that is often in this idea of storytelling and specifically around this concept of behavioral science which is known as the identifiable victim or identifiable beneficiary effect that we have a tendency to offer greater aid towards a specific individual that is observed under hardship versus a group of people gets back to like that idea that the death of a person is a tragedy, but the death of 30,000 people is a statistic. And that's what Charity Water has always done really well. And they do this with Scott Harris and their founder's story and knowing and uh, the, the narrative arc to the hero's journey as it's known, right? And they really are able to connect with their donors, um, not so much by telling them how large the problem is in statistics and numbers, but really honing in on individual stories. And, and the reason that they do this is because as a donor, I wanna know that my dollar is having an impact. And oftentimes I am moved to give through an emotional string. And by telling a story about an individual person, I'm able to connect with that individual person. And, it gives me the sense that uh, my dollars are impacting somebody's specific life um, rather than just potentially going to a pool of money. So there's, there's that side of the equation. And there's also the, the way that we, we view money as a donor. Um, there's something in behavioral economics called hyperbolic discounting, but basically talks about this concept that um, 20, the way that we view $20 today is very different than the way that we view um, having to give $20 in the future. We actually discount that value, right? So if I, if I came to you and I said, listen, um, would you donate $100 today or $10 a month for a year? The latter sounds more attractive because you, you understand the $10 you have to give today, but you kind of start to forget about the $10 you're going to give every month over the course of a year, even though that, that sum total is actually greater. So the way that donors also sort of process information and view giving, um, that also coupled with what we're calling the subscription-based giving economy and that the way that we're paying for just goods and services in general, even in the for-profit industries is on this recurring giving uh, 
a paying model. Um, so those habits are starting to come over into the nonprofit space too. And I know I've attacked a lot in here, but the, the third point on that also is as a nonprofit, as any organization, you want predictable, consistent revenue, right? And having a donor that gives 10, 20, $30 a month, but you know that they're gonna give every month, it, it allows you to, to plan further in the future because you have guaranteed revenue coming in versus saying, oh, I need to go out and get another 10 or $15,000 grant after this year is closed. Yes, I mean, that. to your last point, I think from what I see, this is one of the biggest challenges for, or at least m- many of the nonprofits I speak to is, is shifting away and frankly actually it's often a challenge in in the business sector as well is you you know you the the kind of 80 20 rule but with right non-profits it it is a challenge it's you know getting the kind of consistent donor base that um you know the hundred bucks of over a year rather than the the one-up fee because actually you can plan better around those those types of donations and those types of relationships so it is a major challenge that i see yeah, and it's funny because the other thing is too, as a, as a nonprofit, one of the things that sometimes works against them is, you know, if I have a donor ready to give me a hundred dollars, as a nonprofit, I'm kind of like, well, I just want that hundred dollars right now, right? I don't want to defer that money into the future, even if they were going to opt into a, a recurring gift. And I know that over the long run, that recurring gift is actually more valuable, but it's also the same type of way that we view money and cash um, can work against us in that sense because as a nonprofit on the other side of that equation. And this, you mentioned the uh, identifiable victim effect there as well, which again is also really, uh, I I think you talk about it in the book, but I've also, I've heard it a number of times, I think on different podcasts Mm -hmm. and and actually I think, you know, all of us from a, from a personal point of view can actually understand it. It's quite an easy one to understand. You know, you see a photograph of, um, you know, if it's, if it's one dog that's injured or if it's, you know, one child being rescued, whatever it is, it's a lot easier to relate to that than the problem that sits behind that, that might be, you know, 500 dogs that need rescuing or, or thousands of kids that need support or education. That, that is, what, what do you see as that balance? Because there is the promotion of, you know, one, one person you're rescuing, but ultimately behind that, there is a story that is, what's the impact of the organization? You know, how many, how many animals, how many people, you know, what, what is there? Is there a balance there? I mean, telling those stories with Charity Water, for example, do they, I don't know in detail, but do they use those kind of individual stories to create real connections with their donors? Is that the way they do it? Yeah, they do. And it, it's, it's interesting because the research actually shows that, so I, I, when you move from even one to two to three to four people, right? So I'm not even talking a large group. I'm talking just a couple people and promoting a group of people it, that, that impact of the identifiable beneficiary effect decreases, right? Even when you're going from two to three to four from, from one, which is interesting because when I first learned this, I was like, well, if you go from one to a thousand, I could totally see that, right? But just even yeah. a couple people. And part of the reason is that, um, you know, it, it's, it's actually harder for us to remember specific information about groups of people. So as soon as you have two or three or four people, what you start to do is you start to categorize and make generalizations because you're trying to group them together. And because of that, it becomes less concrete in your mind and you're not able to attach as much as you are to a specific person where you can attribute specific information. So that's part of it. And then the other thing is too, there's a sense that we, you know, as humans, we, we, we like to fix things and make things complete, right? And if, if I give a dollar to help 
one fourth of four people, I feel like I'm only solving part of the problem, right? Versus if I'm giving to help one specific person and I help solve that specific person's problem, even though I don't fix the entire nonprofit's mission, I still feel that I've completed a, a part of the puzzle and that, that gives me that, that, that feeling. It's really interesting because when, you, when you're explaining that, you would think that a rational person can overcome that, that feeling. As in, if I am, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm rationally looking at how I donate to a charity and I'm going to give a hundred bucks, then, you know, it shouldn't make any difference, but it clearly does, right? This is not, the, the, the emotional, is the emotional just a bigger driver? So regardless of, um, you know, the, regardless of using your rational mind, it, the emotional kind of overrides in these situations, does it? Is that what's driving it? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because you see oftentimes a lot of platforms that come out, um, they're like stock brokerage type of platforms for giving to charities, right? I've seen every three or six months one pops up. And for the most part, they never catch on, right? And it's different. Listen, if you're a millionaire or billionaire and you're allocating, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars a year, you're trying to figure out where where your money's going to have the most impact, you're doing more of an, you know, ROI calculation, Right. But that's not the way that we give money. Yeah. You know, we, we don't, we don't, even if we say we do, we don't typically sit down and say, where's my dollar going to have the most bang for my buck, right? It's, it's a very emotionally driven experience that causes us to give. And I think you're right. It's like, we like to think that we give rationally, but oftentimes we, we don't give rationally. We give emotionally. And, and that's, that's the side that these nonprofits even tap into to get people to give. Yeah, interesting. I, I um, this is the question I had a bit later, but we'll ask it now. In terms of, I know you've you've had a quite a bit of exposure to machine learning, AI. It, does this start to to come into play in these situations? I imagine it is very useful when you can, you know, if you're in a charity with thousands of donors and you're trying to, you know, understand this. Is machine learning that something's being used? Is there, you know, a technology play to this? Is that what we're going to see? Yeah, I mean the 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 day eventually will come when behavioral science and data science overlap, right? So data science, your machine learning, your AI. And the reason is because behavioral science basically helps us understand how people make decisions. And data science basically says, this is what this person is likely to do, right? And we see this in behavioral science, for example, um, you know, with, with like predictive analytics, right? So one of the, the things you could potentially do for a donor or a group of donors is based on their giving history, you can predict how much money they might give the next time you ask, right? So imagine an email campaign and you can use these numbers to prime them. So there's actually been studies which says, if you if you even just, I'm not even talking like machine learning right now or data science, if you just refer yep. to their previous gift, you know, last month you gave $75 or last year you gave $75, how much would you like to give versus just how much would you like to give? people will subconsciously anchor to that $75 amount, right? So you can start to take the predictive modeling of the data science piece and use that to begin to um, create anchors for your donors uh, in terms of outreach and and donations. Mm. So that's done. I mean, we, you know, we're a software business. So we've, we've looked at some of this in terms of our, our own pricing models on our website, actually, Right. In terms of, is it the same kind of psychology? Is it when you look at donors? So if you're going out there, maybe not necessarily a existing donor, but a, it could be a new donor. When you present the different kind of levels of what someone could give, is it the same sort of psychology where you people will typically go in? You know, you put a, a major one at the top, a large amount, and people typically go in at a certain level because 
you know, you need that large amount to push people up the chain kind of thing. Sounds awfully, yeah, influ- it sounds awfully influencing, but these are, you know, this is the psychology of how people make a decision to, to donate or to buy, right? In terms of looking at price. Yeah, and a very high level. I mean, that's that's conceptually how it works. I mean, we, there's actually a study from the Science of Giving, which is a, a book on philanthropic giving. And there was one study they did where they basically, they were doing a phone-a-thon and they would say, we had another donor who gave, um, they would actually match up the gender. So if they heard a male voice, they would say, we had another male donor who gave $25. We had another male donor who gave $50. We had another male donor who gave 75 and they randomized these, right? So they just refer to somebody else, completely anonymous. You didn't know who they were, but they just would say this other donor gave X amount of dollars. And what they found was there was a pretty high correlation between the number dollar donation amount referenced on the phone and what the donor decided to give, right? So it's just another example of how also showing what other people are doing can create a social norm around what one should be giving, right? So if you think about this, you walk into a museum and there's a there's a like a donation box, right? One of the things yep. you'll do, even if you don't realize, is you'll look in the box, you'll see what everyone else has get, give has given, and then you'll put in something to sort of match that number, right? Yeah. Um, so the same sort of concept. Yeah, interesting. So it is, yeah, using the same same sort of psychology. Right. Yeah. In terms of in terms of case studies. Um, you know, looking at organizations you've worked with, are there any, you know, good examples where you've, where you've worked with a, with a charity that's wanting to convert, you know, kind of one-time donors to regular givers, um, you know, examples where you've worked with organizations successfully and, and how that's happened? Yeah. So we actually ran a study, which is really interesting. It was about two years ago, I think, looking at converting previous one-time donors to recurring donors through an email campaign. And um, one of the, the approaches that we tested was an email copy that basically said that, hey, you know, you were you were a one-time donor at, at such and such time, and we were asking them to convert to become a recurring donor. But in the email, we leveraged something called pseudo-set framing. And basically what pseudo-set framing is, is it's this idea that um, if we group actions as part of a set, people are more likely to complete them, even if those actions are completely arbitrary, not related to one another. So in the email, we created a piece of imagery that was a pie chart. And there were two thirds of it were, were filled. The first one said, you know, become a supporter. And that was basically complete. The second one was make a one-time donation. That was also complete because this group had previously donated. And then the third part of the pie chart was empty. And it said, become a recurring donor. And we tested this one email campaign without this imagery and the other campaign with this imagery. And the one with the imagery converted higher, leveraging this pseudo-set framing to nudge people to become a recurring donor. Damn, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, that's so pseudo. That, I've not heard that expression before. Pseudo-set framing. So that is a technique for doing this, is it? Where you're giving someone the perception of a certain situation before they've made a decision. Is that? I don't know if I'm describing. Yeah, it right, and it. But- it gets even into sort of this idea of goal gradient theory, but the basic concept that underlies all of this is that we want to take an action and we love to see progression, right? So anytime that we can see progression or understand that we've completed something, we feel a sense of accomplishment, right? So you'll also see this oftentimes in uh, becoming a recurring giver. If you're going to, if you're going to donate over the course of 12 months is showing the donor 
progress every single month to let them know that even you're donating a large amount over a given year, you're actually making progress throughout the whole, the whole time period. And also charity water actually does this very well. I don't know if they still have the functionality, but they used to have something where like after three months, you got like a badge or you were like a certain type of donor. And then after six months, you were, so you felt that you were making progression and hitting completion points along the longer donor journey. Yep. Really interesting. Uh, slight, maybe slightly unrelated, but also a part in your book I, I really enjoyed was this whole, the hero's journey stuff, which again, actually we've used as a business, you know, designing certain pages on a website. Um, I've also trained as a, as a screenwriter and, and written a oh, really? screen, yeah, written a couple of screenplays. Oh, wow. So completely understand that process actually. And I, in fact, I can't watch a movie really anymore without analyzing yeah inciting incidents, turning points. And, you know, not every movie works to the structure. Often art house films don't, and some cult films don't actually, but, but when they don't, you also realize you've got to make the effort to stay involved because that structure of the, and there's different, there's, there, there are varying structures, right? But it's typically the hero's journey and you've got turning points. I mean, this really right. interesting that, uh, do you see, I think you use Charity Water again as an example, actually, in the book. But do you see nonprofits using this in terms of how they communicate with the market, with donors, how they tell their story, using that kind of structured framework? You know, I don't see, honestly, a lot of them, to be honest with you. I mean, Charity Water was one of the first ones. Um, you know, it's, it's actually surprising how few nonprofits are very intentional around the way that they they adhere to true storytelling. Um, so, I mean, I know Charity Water does it. There's a few others, but it's actually surprising how many don't do it. And it, like you said, it's, you know, I used to always think, I was like, wow, there's these really engaging stories and movies. I was like, wow, they must just be brilliant people. And not to say that they're not brilliant, they're obviously brilliant, but like underlying all that, as you said, there is, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a science to it to at least get you started that you, you can take a story. And if you fit it into the hero's journey, you can see how much, more compelling the same exact story can become just by fitting into that framework. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, I haven't, we hadn't kind of talked about this before the call so that, you know, I didn't know what your answer would be on that. And I, but reading it in the book and I wondered, you know, are, are people doing it because, and I, I kind of made the assumption there are, you know, consulting organizations out there kind of using it as a framework to help nonprofits better communicate with, with their donor base, but maybe it's not, maybe it's just used intermittently with different, different organizations so it's definitely yeah <coughs> excuse me it's definitely an interesting area and it does work as well you know that kind of hero's journey really helps you to right. kind of engage and feel hooked in to the mm -hmm. the kind of emotional core core and going back to this selling a feeling which i think we talked about at the beginning but i mean that that, that yeah. is the key thing here i a lot of this is about selling selling a feeling ultimately if you're a charity yeah and i think too with that it, it, i i get a uh, at this a little bit in the book, but just just because you don't have a product or a service you're 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 selling doesn't mean you you don't need to close that loop, right? I'm I'm still giving money, I'm still donating my time or my money to these nonprofits, and as a donor, as a supporter, I I want to I want to be a thanked for for what I've done, but I also want to know that I had an impact, right? It's the same thing in the in the for profit private industry. If you purchase a product or service or good, you you want to get the value of that good and even though you're you're not buying a product or a service for the nonprofit, you still need to close that that loop for your donors. It, it's really no different. Yeah, yeah, for sure, makes perfect sense. 
Um, I just have one other other topic, the kind of elephant in the room, I suppose, which, uh, you know, hard to be on any podcast or conversation and, and not mention the the current situation in the world, the pandemic. You know, we've had a very strange kind of 12, well, longer than 12 months now. But um, in terms of the work you do, you know, has it has it changed anything, you know, in terms of behavioral economics, how people are looking at how they engage their audience, their customers because of lockdown, is it just been business as normal? Is, you know, anything out of this that, you, you know, you found of interest or, or, or worth mentioning? I would say for some organizations, it's definitely sped up this need to embrace and double down on digital in general, right? Um, yeah. Some companies and nonprofits that might have been saying, hey, we can kick this thing down the road have, have really set that up. I know specifically in the nonprofit space too, I mean, a lot of fundraising has been from galas and in-person events and figuring out what does that transition look like to some sort of online type of platform has, has been big. Um, so I, th I think it's, it's sped up a lot of those types of things. I think though, in terms of just working norms, et cetera, as far as the remote work, I, listen, is that here to stay indefinitely? I, I, don't, I don't know. There's also an interesting debate going on in the behavioral science field around this idea that, you know, as a society, we adhere to certain social norms and how long does a norm need to be in place to become the new norm? So working from home is a perfect example of that. There are some things that will happen for a small period of time, but once the event is over, people sort of revert to the mean, right? To what they were previously doing. But there's also, if this new norm is in place for a certain period of time, it can be actually become the new norm. So that's some of the things that, that we're thinking about, but listen, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what, what is the general con consensus around that? I mean, just as in, you know, how long does something have to go before it just becomes the, you know, the, not necessarily, the, well, I don't like this expression, the new norm, but it's probably the best way to describe it. But is there a general consensus around the, the time something has to go before you just expect life to be like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I honestly, I don't know. I would, I would imagine it's sort of like, event dependent context dependent but i i don't if there is an answer to that um i don't know but that's something i'll definitely look into after this call yeah it's definitely interesting so um i didn't have any other questions um is there anything i didn't ask that that you'd like to talk about or that you think's interesting to, to our audience um that is a great question um I think though, I, I will say this, oftentimes when I'm, when I'm on these podcasts, I say, you know, you talked about a lot of great stuff, but like, what can I do tomorrow to, to, to start implementing some of the ideas and concepts and where can I go to find those? So I will say one of the best ways to just start testing these behavioral science concepts is if you're a nonprofit and you do email marketing, whether that's donors or supporters or just a generalist and you use a platform such as Constant Contact or MailChimp, most of those have built in AB split testing tools. And we actually have a great workbook. Um, if you go to creativescience.co and just sign up for a newsletter, um, I can send it to you. It basically just talks about a number of the different behavioral science theories that I was speaking about and ways to actually use them. And just like start testing some email campaigns, you know, send out one email campaign that uses this idea of pseudo set framing that I was saying and split test it with your normal campaign. Just start to see which ones perform better if the open rates increase or the click-through rates increase. And then you can say, oh, this is interesting. I sent this email campaign using pseudo set framing. It got a higher click-through rate than our normal campaign. I wonder where else in our donor journey we can start to leverage this. It's a great way to get started. And probably if you're using some type of email marketing tool, 
Um, a lot of those have these capabilities already built in. You don't have to revamp your entire system. Great way to get started. Awesome. Well, look, yeah, cheers. That people will appreciate that advice, and I'll leave some links in the in the podcast notes. Um, in in terms of other links to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in terms of other links to, you know, where people can find out about you, where they can follow you. What, what what's the best way for people to find out about Nate Andorsky? Sure. So LinkedIn, just search me, Nate Andorsky. I'm happy to connect and chat with anybody. Um, also, the, the website, www.creativescience.co.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at Nate Andorsky. Brilliant. Cool. I'll leave all those links in the, in the podcast notes. And uh, yeah, Nate, really appreciate you, you know, giving some time. And I know it'll be useful to our audience. So yeah, thank, thanks again. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Have a, have a good evening. You too. This is a podcast from Task. Task helps you create and measure impact. For more information, please visit task.io.